thanks for joining the SoarCast, where we talk about drones, manned aircraft, and satellites, and how they relate to geospatial products found on the SOAR platform. It's Darren Smith with SOAR, and you're joining us for the SOARcast. Today we have a first. Today is the first time we're doing four people in a SOARcast. We're joined by, of course, Neil Prentice of SOAR, and also Mike McDonald and Jim Retta, both based in California. Uh, you've, you've had Neil with, you, with us before, so there's no intro necessary for Neil. But of course, Mike and Jim are new to the SOARcast. Mike and Jim, it's good to have you on the SOARcast today. Good to see you. Good to be here. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, thanks, guys. And for those of you who um, are listening in and perhaps wondering how uh, the relation is that, that we're having Mike and Jim on the SOARcast, uh, Jim and Mike are, are actually um, supporters of our mobile GIS application. So Jim and Mike come from a uh, military uh, background, and so they um, supported our mobile um GIS application for data acquisition and field mapping. Uh, but as well, uh, Mike and Jim have extensive backgrounds in the geospatial space. So I'm going to start with Mike. Mike, if you can, give us a, a brief bio of yourself. Well, um, I got into remote sensing uh, right out of uh, college, actually in college. I was a geology major, and uh, what I wanted to do was uh, find gold with satellites. So I j jumped over to the geography department, which had a remote sensing group, and uh, I took the remote sensing classes and just figured that I could find gold and oil uh, from an office chair rather than trudging up and down mountains and being on boats all around the world. And the more I got into it, um, um, uh, the more I found applications for remotely sensed data. I then uh, got out of school and got a job with NASA, working with their Earth, uh, uh, app Earth Resources Group at Ames Research Center here in the Bay Area, and started working with Landsat and all sorts of satellites, working with uh, EO data, radar data, uh, GIS systems, etc., and then moved into essentially the defense industry and got more and more into what they call uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and that was my career for 35 years. Well, that's quite interesting, Mike. Thank you for that for that overview. And I think Jim's got a similar uh, background as well. But Jim, over to you. Uh, give us a bio of yourself and, and what you've been doing um, up to date, I guess. Okay, I got my start back in college in the Environmental Studies program where I was planning on uh, urban planning and um, using GIS products for land use in an urban environments. And I was very fortunate to land a student worker position with our U.S. Geological Survey Western Mapping Center, where I was able to label orthophoto quads and uh, topographic maps of the Western U.S. So it gave me a good background in the use of those uh, products. 
And uh, after that, I went on active duty in the Air Force into the intelligence career field, where I served as an all-source intelligence analyst. And so the background starting off with uh, what I did with the, uh, the maps led right into what I was doing with um, updating aeronautical charts for the Air Force and also all-source intelligence, daily intelligence products, multiple products over my career uh, from there. So uh, most of my time was out in the Pacific, uh, mainly against the, uh, the Korean situation. And I had a very enjoyable career using a variety of different intelligence products uh, from a variety of sources. And so that led me into support now. Uh, very good. Well, thanks, Jim, for that. And I think it's something that I didn't point out is that um, the both of you have had experience in both the, um, I guess, manned and unmanned uh, remote systems. So that's both uh, aircraft as well as satellites, which um, takes me to what uh, Mike is involved currently with uh, these days, and that's a company called GOG2. I just mentioned their aero, but what does GOG2 do, Jim? I'm sorry, Mike. Well, uh, uh, building out of some experience that I had in the defense industry, when the defense industry tried to go into commercial sides, when I was at a company called TRW, which is now part of Northrop Grumman, we uh, created a, a commercial uh, activity called AccuScan. And AccuScan was a follow-on to another uh, system called C-Scan. C-Scan was uh, a system for detecting open ocean oil slicks. And uh, we proposed that to the uh, U.S. government uh, right after the Exxon Valdez uh, disaster in, in Alaska when we had that big oil spill. Uh, mm -hmm. Then we decided to see if remote sensing uh, military technologies or remote sensing would be applicable to... Uh, uh, commercial uh, applications. So we created a, a company called, or a project called AccuScan, and we uh, took Cessna aircraft, light aircraft, in this case we did Cessna and Bonanza and Beechcraft aircraft, um, uh, and made systems that would do aerial surveillance of, of uh, agricultural crops. That went for a year and a half uh, and didn't take root. Uh, uh, the commercial world didn't accept it. The Gover the, the aerospace company didn't see fast enough return, so they kind of dumped it. So uh, after leaving TRW uh, and in the valley here uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, there the dot com boom was was coming on, and this was uh, in the in the late in the early two thousands, and. Uh, 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 I got with a friend who was also doing uh, remote sensing. He was doing agricultural stuff, and we decided that uh, we would uh, see if we could get some funding to start an agricultural aerial surveillance company. We pitched probably over 100 pitches to different investment firms and finally got one, uh, the Angel Forum, that bit. Um, and uh, we put together uh, uh, an agricultural aerial surveillance system uh, we got funded in 2008 and started operations in 2009. And our goal was to provide high quality, temporally responsive imagery data to the U.S. ag community. And uh, we put the system together, got the aircraft, and we've been doing that for 12 years. I think this is a good time to revisit the past, if you will, because, Jim, I just learned that, in fact, you were uh, sort of very early days in uh, aerial photography can you, uh, I, I'm going to, this is a question for both of you, but for Jim, I want you to address 
the technology that was used when you, you were doing your internship, what kind of cameras, what was the imagery, the resolution, as, as best you can. And then follow that on, uh, uh, Mike, if you can tell me where, that, where those types of systems are now. Okay, when I started out, the orthophoto quads, to, me, uh, to my memory, used a uh, scanning imager system. I wasn't on the front end user of it, mainly the finished product, finishing that up with the labeling it. So that's what I saw. Um, saw a lot of utility to that throughout our Western US. And I heard the product was still very popular with a lot of, especially ranchers and farmers. So that's what it was. It was just black and white uh, scanning imagers of that era, 1970s technology. Wow. Uh, just a um, quick question. And those were, those were singular images. Um, I guess, you know, if you wanted that imagery, you could purchase, I suppose, purchase the imagery one off. But those images stood alone by themselves. They weren't, uh, I guess, meshed together or stitched together. Is that correct? Not very well. You could see that there were some uh, stitching problems with the technology of the, that day. Uh, in that era so it was fine for like a uh, vegetative work you could kind of see where that was at uh, but roads and straight lines fence lines sometimes were offset a bit so you could see the you know, there was quality issues with it but it was usable data at that time okay and so mike can you tell me kind of where where you guys at and i believe your technology is called the foresight camera so uh, maybe if you could give us the nuts and bolts the technical details and the capabilities of that imaging system Actually, the camera we use isn't a foresight system. When we first started out, this was 11, 12 years ago, there were no cameras that were available that had the high enough uh, uh, pixel resolution and that were affordable for us to be able to uh, apply to agriculture. So what we did is we went to, after one or two false starts with specific imaging companies, uh, we settled on phase one. And phase one is a, com a commercial medium format camera uh, maker, or one of their products is a medium format camera. And they had just released a uh, 39 megapixel monochrome camera. So the issue with the imagers at the time was that a lot of people were using color cameras, which use a Bayer pattern uh, uh, where they get red, green, and blue, but the focal plane, um, uh, has um, essentially a color, a red, green, and blue color filters over it. And you can't really use that for spectral imaging. So uh, by fortuitous, you know, coincidence, there was a company in uh, Palo Alto called Bear Imaging that uh, had ordered a monochrome high resolution meg uh, 39 megapixel backs for these medium format cameras. They wanted to do that to support their artistic photography customers uh, in capturing Ansel Adams type photography. Well, since we were monochrome, they're perfect for us because we put a filter on each camera. So we uh, worked with them to get a, a color camera, uh, which was is a Bayer pattern at 39 megapixels, and three monochrome cameras uh, essentially filtered for the Landsat red, green, and near infrared bands. And from that, we uh, built that up to create our NDVI. Um, the, we currently have 39 megapixel cameras, and I was talking to uh, Kevin today, and uh, uh, he says, and we've been talking to these guys for a while, that um, uh, we're probably going to be able to uh, upgrade these cameras 
and now the uh, megapixel of the monochrome cameras is going to be, uh, let me see, is 151 megapixels. So that will allow, Whoa. right now we get 28-inch resolution flying an aircraft at 28,000 feet. If we upgrade the cameras to 151 megapixels, we'll get 14-inch resolution multi-spectral with 6-inch color uh, with the same field of view and the same operating cost as, we, as we've been working with for the past uh, uh, 10 years. So uh, some people are interested in greater resolution, other people are not. So we're probably going to fly 2021 with the standard systems and with some of our partners, uh, if they want to buy in, then we may upgrade and fly late 2021 uh, with other cameras and uh, uh, 2022 with uh, the higher resolution system. Mike, maybe you can a ask a question that's always in my head. Uh, I fly a drone, and of course, I can fly it at, at 10 meters if I want and get even sub-centimeter uh, resolution. Is this any good to a farmer, sub-centimeter resolution? Well, when we started out, we looked at satellites, manned aircraft, drones, balloons, dirigibles, you know, all, any type of source, because in reality, the customer... They don't care where the image comes from. They don't care. It doesn't matter where it came from. It needs to be the right quality, the right resolution, delivered at the right time. So the problem the with right drones price? is that they can't economically cover agriculture enough to pay for their operating costs. Because what can happen is, is our offering right now, uh, you can get a subscription from us for between six to eight dollars per acre for the season and that gets you between five and eight images um, uh, for the year and that kind of comes down to uh, maybe a dollar or fifty cents an image well if you have 500 acres that's five hundred dollars it and in that flight that one flight that we get your one five hundred acres we cover millions of acres in that same flight uh, with the drone the guy has to get the drone he has to get in the, his truck he has to drive to that location set it up fly it and then process it and because that it's the traveling salesman problem uh, he only has a certain amount of capacity to uh, image during a day so his hours per acre is very uh, very high or our hours per acre, we have a seven-hour, six-hour flight. It's an hour prep before we go. The guys are up for four or five hours. This is two guys in the aircraft. So our hours per, our cost per acre, even though we have a large, uh, I mean, a, a, a commercial aircraft, is way, 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 way lower than drones. So there are some applications such as um, they're starting to uh, try and, uh, use ground drones to fly uh, along uh, citrus orchards to assess a uh, harvest potential or harvest estimates etc but the drone market um, even though there have been billions of dollars put into it has not taken uh, root in agriculture and every drone startup has kind of 
moved away from agriculture because there's no uh, killer app. Okay, well, thanks, mm -hmm. Mike, for that. I think the other thing that um, I guess comes to mind in that space is if even if I'm giving that ultra high resolution, you're still driving a tractor, and the tractor can only turn around in so large an area. And so it's I think as well, it's an economy of of scale. Sure, you might have that one centimeter resolution, but can you spray just a centimeter? You know, it's probably more on the order of working with things like an actual meter or so. And and uh, Anyhow, I wanted well, to because go I ahead, have Mike. A comment on that. Yeah, it, the the information that gets to the grower is only useful if you can do something about it. An infield sprayer takes about fifteen yards to switch. So what happens is um, these were the old terrigators, right? So what happens is uh, they can only change their application with the existing equipment uh, to a certain scale. So we took that into account when we worked on our initial resolution analysis on 28 uh, inches, right? And that, that 28 inches is, is related to the uh, row pattern and, and plant uh, separation in most uh, 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 irrigated crops, row crops in California, and it uh, avoids getting vignetting. But if you're looking at uh, every foot or every inch, the the current existing systems can't, they can't spray, as you're saying, they can't spray, they can't change down to that amount. So a, a coarser resolution is better for uh, application management, things like that. Okay, thanks, Mike. We're, we've been talking about multispectral or, or the, the infrared light and the red, green, and blue light, and, and a little bit how it applies to, to agriculture. Uh, Jim, a question for you in your uh, experience in mapping and also in, uh, I guess, surveillance. Is, is multispectral, is, are there advantages to, to having, say, infrared or far infrared, those, those types of electromagnetic light? And, and what is the information that, that you can get from that part of the spectrum in things like either mapping or even surveillance? Yeah, there's quite a bit of capability there. A lot of it depends on what type of targets you're after. Of course, anything with a, a thermal signature, of course, is readily available on IR. And from then on, you can further evaluate the spectrum of those to, in many cases, further identify the target or what's emitting the, uh, the source of it. And, of course, other sources or uses of it are well known as far as, uh, you know, monitoring vegetation and the like. But uh, you can also, of course, look at situations where there's been uh, utilization of a facility or use of a facility uh, our facilities active at this time. So there's a lot of capabilities uh, that you can uh, derive from uh, IR sources. The okay. uh, original uh, Landsat satellite, the bands that were used uh, in that were essentially derived from camouflage detection film, which was used during World War II and after, which is infrared film. And that was used to detect... Uh, uh, slash and cut camouflage uh, for military purposes. So as you would, uh, if you hid in a healthy bush, they couldn't find you. But if you hid in a bush and chopped all these things down and put them on your tank, they would slowly change their near-infrared signature and they would show up in the film. Uh, and trying to mimic the, the, that vegetation with camouflage, it's the same way. They didn't quite get it right. So they were able to detect 
both camouflage uh, uh, fabrics as well as cut and slash um, uh, uh, camouflage. And out of that came the analysis of, of vegetation for agriculture and forestry, etc. I totally didn't know That's, that, Mike, but I'm glad I do. I do know that now. This is a bit off topic, but I know that the three of you are gamers, tank gamers. Yes. Yep. Yes, that's right. <laughs> do these games give you infrared? Do they give you infrared vision? Yes. Depends. De de depends on the game and depends on what level you're playing at and how real you want it. Yeah. In one of the games, when the tanks developed infrared illuminators, which are spotlights, essentially, they give you uh, an imager to be able to get near-infrared imaging. Then later on, as the technology developed, it goes into thermal. And if you happen to win or buy those types of tanks that have the thermal, you can look in, 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 uh, um, uh, in thermal. However, they don't have a camouflage de detection thing at the level I play, so I can still hide in a bush. Though yeah. so you can't hide behind smoke. They'll see you through that <laughs> with thermal. And remind me, what what... What, what part of the, is it, isn't it, uh, is it near infrared that can, um, can penetrate smoke? It's thermal. So that's mm -hmm. more, that's further away. Uh, so a long, slightly longer band. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good. Neil, thanks for that. Um, okay. So, and thanks for the, the segue into why, uh, Landsat developed, uh, you know, and, and what the, the reason was for that. Um, for those of, the listeners who are who are listening in and perhaps are either drone pilots or they're um, they're in agriculture and they're interested in in the capabilities. Mike, I heard you drop the um, the I guess golden phrase NDVI. Uh, what is NDVI? What does it tell me? Well, uh, it's uh, NDVI stands for Normalized Difference Vegetative Index, and what it does is it takes the visible red. Uh, reflected radiation coming off a plant and it takes the non-visible near-infrared uh, ra uh, radiation that's coming off the plant from the sun and it mathematically compares those two. So um, if a plant is healthy and vigorous it reflects very highly in the non-visible near-infrared. Um, when a plant is healthy it does not reflect in the visible red. Why? Because the plant is green. As the plant starts to die off or get unhealthy, it starts to get chlorotic. It turns yellow. Well, that's the increase of the red reflection coming from the plant because it's unhappy somehow. At the same time, in the, uh, <clears throat> the near-infrared, which is non-visible, that reflection plummets. So as you're healthy, the infrared is high, red is low. As you're unhealthy, Near infrared is low and red is high. So this balancing contrast relationship can be put into a simple mathematical formula which allows you to uh, uh, get an understanding of the extremes of these ratios and it allows you to assign an, an, a numeric number which is what the NDVI puts out which is correlates with plant health and vigor. When the number is high the plants are happy when the number is low, the plants are unhappy. This is how um, this is the 
digital version of what the camouflage detection film did. Well, cool. thank you very much for that, Mike. And and uh, I think it's it's quite interesting to know that um, I guess this is this is sort of the standard uh, deliverable that um, you know that anybody who's in the uh, multispectral space for for ag. Are there other composites or or variations with a near infrared and, and green that uh, yield other information? Yeah, uh, we uh, looked at them at GOG2 to decide whether we wanted to, and another company I was with called AgriLogics, whether we wanted to be able to provide those. There's about 30 uh, uh, indices using uh, green, uh, red, green, blue, and near infrared, and another thing called red edge. And red edge is a portion of the near infrared spectrum that's much closer to the visible red than what would be considered the, the standard near-infrared non-visible. And uh, we looked at those. There's some people who use red edge quite a bit. There's some studies that show it can help you see things a little bit better. We've looked uh, at, we've flown and operated with red edge as well as uh, standard NDVI, and we don't see much difference between the two. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. I, I know. I know that. Uh, I suppose it's uh, horses for courses, and it comes down to uh, whatever the crop is you're working with, and perhaps if you find that uh, I don't know, it gives you more clues, or or you just like the look, the look of it a bit better. This is for Jim, but it's in the the same space. When you were with the USGS, and I know it was your internship, and and uh, we're asking quite a few questions, but I'm aware that minerals have different reflectance spectrum. So we, for example, we, on, on SOAR, we have a geology composite for the sentinel imagery. And it, from memory, it's far infrared, two far infrared bands and blue. But the, that combination gives you good delineation uh, across soil and across rock changes. Have you, have you had experience or can you give us more insight on you know, the, the multispectral imagery with regards to geologic mapping? Well, the sources I had uh, didn't have that at that time, so they evolved afterwards. But I remember other examples of that uh, that I can mention is, yes, you can look for activity patterns. We could see where people had been, for example, uh, uh, where act, let's see, activity vehicles, uh, human presence, uh, disturbances of the soil, all that were derived from that type of imagery. Okay. And so you were with the, the Air Force. Is that something that's used, I guess, in the, in the field of battle? Is, is multispectral imagery something that's useful? I guess you alluded to that a little bit with, in terms of thermal imaging. Yes, because uh, multispectral, of course, yields more data, uh, an expanded picture of what's out there that you're seeing uh, beyond what you can see, of course, in the visual uh, uh, spectrum. So whenever you can get more data out of a situation, out of a battle space, of course, you have more, uh, a more accurate picture of what's going on and, and uh, better data to, uh, to make uh, decisions on. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Jim. And I guess it's, it alludes to, you know, the things that we're doing with, with imagery, whether it's, it's multispectral or it's the uh, near color composite or the standard RGB as, as we all know it. Uh, it alludes also to something that we do on SOAR, and we, we give a platform for 
any type of imagery, whether that's, as I mentioned, those two types of composites, but even further and if and other types of maps. So we're going to take a quick break and a word from our, our sponsor, which is, of course, SOAR. often do you think the images on Google Earth are updated? What if there was a website that could give you access to near real-time satellite imagery for almost any location on Earth, updated daily? Meet SOAR, the future of all maps and imagery. Start exploring today, soar.earth. So thanks everyone for joining us again with the SOARcast. Once again, we're here with uh, Neil Prentice of SOAR, also with Mike McDonald and Jim Retta, both based in California. Neil has a few, uh, I guess, nitty-gritty questions for the two of you. So over to you, Neil. Okay, thanks for that, uh, Darren. Uh, welcome aboard, Mike and Jim, again. Thank you. And uh, one, of the, one of the questions that we always get asked at SOAR by people is, can I get a real-time satellite image? What You guys have had a lot of experience with satellites. What would you say to someone who asked that question? Mike? Well, a real-time satellite image is, I believe, available in the classified world because they need um, um, very, very up-to-date information. Now, um, real-time... It, as if, as you see on the TV, they say, oh, look, let's bring up the satellite feed, right? And take this picture and zoom in and, and see what sunglasses this guy is wearing. <laughs> um, I think those are in the realm of, of Hollywood because, uh, uh, and I've been out of the loop a little bit, so uh, uh, you can take that into account. But it takes time to get an image uh, uh, from a collector, whether it's an aircraft or whether it's a satellite. So when you say near real time, there's always a little bit of a lag to it. And mm. the degree to which they were able to get imagery fairly rapidly is a function of the, uh, the data dissemination networks. And the military and the intel community uh, can polish those and optimize those as much as they want. For uh, mm. uh, commercial systems, the uh, commercial systems, they can download their imagery within minutes of getting it, but then they have the challenge of getting it through their processing system and then out to the actual customer because none of them are set up to be a real-time system. They're set up to be a near hmm. real-time system, system or an after-the-fact system where you get your image for spot or something. You can get it, what, weeks after uh, the best uh, mm. uh, Chinese imagery that we got was uh, 16 hours uh, working a project uh, uh, for a, uh, an international customer, a commercial activity. Uh, but mm. these systems, they could be able to get an image if the people uh, uh, on companies like Planet and these other new systems that are going out there set up that architecture. But in order to make yeah. the investment for that architecture, you have to have a customer who wants it, and there and we'll aren't for tons it. of people sitting around waiting to see, hey, I need a picture of my house now. Yeah. Uh, Jim, did you have anything to add to yes, that? Yes. Uh, there's another side of that is 
how fast can you request an image and they respond and task for it? Because if you need it now, mm. but it takes them 40 hours, of course, to receive and plan on it and task it, of course, you won't have it uh, in the time frame you need it. So that's another situation we see in the commercial world of how fast can the uh, collectors take your request, task their vehicles for it, and then uh, collect the data and then disseminate it to you. And we're seeing cases of uh, mm. some cases of a few days and others requiring excess of a week. Yep. And and, and often, um, you know, it'll depend on uh, who, who's got an order in place and how much they're paying for it if it's commercial, because they'll go, they'll, they'll always go for the money first. Of course. Money so, yeah. Mm. Now, it, and, and we talked a lot in the first half about aerial, but I'd like to explore some of the, 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 the things uh, in the satellite space a little bit more, particularly where, Mike and Jimmy, you've seen a lot of, probably a lot of change um, since you first started encountering satellite imagery to what's coming into the market now. Um, you know, we, we've, we've seen Landsat at, at 30 metres or, or maybe, I don't know if the older stuff is even less, uh, even more coarse, but, you know, now we, we're regularly getting commercial 50 centimetres. Now they're talking 40, 30, 25 and just, uh, Jim, I'd, I'd love to get your view of how you've seen this this space change um, from the technology and in terms of where the market is over the over, over your career. Well, what really surprises me is how the commercial world has just exploded in their capabilities. As you mentioned, the uh, resolutions have improved uh, significantly, plus the types of imagery that we have now. Uh, in addition to standard, we've also got uh, radar imagery. Uh, there's now signal collectors going up. So there's a variety of data that's being uh, collected from the satellites now, in addition to the conventional imagery that people are used to. And seeing that and the sheer number of constellations, the number of vehicles by a provider is what I find uh, very almost amazing. Uh, I didn't expect this in the past, that the uh, markets and the industry would have expanded that fast. I thought it would be a, a slower entry mm. to market process for these collectors. I'm surprised they're getting that much investment mm. money to put up new constellations. We've seen about three different uh, SAR constellations uh, planned or launched in like the last year and a half. Wow. So um, I don't know if you can say, but a lot of, is, is a lot of this technology basically declass military technology that people have got a civilian application for and now these people are going, well, we can make a market out of this? Uh, some is, when you, especially when you look at what the imagery uh, platforms have done over the past 20 years. Uh, since the military started adopting mm. a lot of uh, mm. open source and commercial imagery. Um, so, yes, it's, it's a lead on from that. Right, cool. And, and Mike, we'd, like to, we'd love to get your thoughts on, 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 on these changes. Well, um, <clears throat> the first... Uh, the military reconnaissance satellites that are out there and the you know are uh, heavily used by the U.S. government um, to put them up uh, is very very expensive, and they're tasked quite a bit so that they're in very very high demand. So um, the mm -hmm. guy who's fighting a war gets uh, a high priority. The guy who wants to do environmental analysis on a range in the middle of Utah gets extremely low priority. 
but he might still have some money in his budget for imagery. So what the commercial satellite people said is if we can put up some things that are not as good resolution as you get, can we help? Will you buy this imagery? They're saying this to the government. Will you buy this imagery for a bunch of other purposes used by maybe the military, maybe the Bureau of Land Management and the USDA? And the government says, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. And uh, since that might be of use to us in time of conflict to offload military satellites, we'll give you a contract. So what happens, this is what Iconos did. Iconos was originally put together as an agricultural satellite. That's what its business model was. And it hasn't been successful in that at all, but it's been pretty successful selling medium resolution imagery into um, uh, the government. So what happens is each of these uh, resolution, whenever a, a technology comes out that is commercially available um, uh, for imaging, they tended to want to put it into a satellite. Um, and most mm. of the commercial companies that are out there are saying that they're doing this for commercial purposes. But in reality, most of them have a, a government contract, which is big enough to make it worthwhile to put the satellites together. It might be, they might get a $10, $20 million contract um, and they'll put up planet birds. Well, $20 million mm -hmm. contract is enough to keep them going. Then, of course, they say yep. they have a big commercial potential and sometimes that comes through, sometimes it doesn't. So what the, mm -hmm. what the large aerospace companies looked at, the people who, Boeing and Lockheed, who put up Iconos and uh, other satellites like that, they use the dual-use model, uh, military uh, uh, usage as well as commercial usage. Now, the technology mm -hmm. has moved forward where pretty much anybody can make a satellite, right? Um, mm -hmm. they, they look and they say, well, we can, we can provide this data. We can maybe get a government contract and we can have the commercial operations, but we can do it as a commercial company without any of the performance requirements of a military system. So what happens is they can do it quick, fast, without any of the, uh, the requirements that usually a military system has. And then they say, hey, it's already up. We'll sell you a bunch of pictures. And the government says, hey, great. We'll give you a contract for that. And the problem is, is that all too often, the commercial side doesn't come through. And companies like Iconos, and they end up um, uh, stopping their financial development because the commercial business doesn't pan out or it pans out very slowly mm. right okay so in the in the commercial market you know with we've, we've seen you know te the technology improve and the price start to fall of this a lot of this imagery and you know uh sentinels out there that you know the sentinel feed we can you can get from sorg you know landsat downloadable for free and then you see you're getting sort of sub five meters and people are starting to charge money um do you where do you see that commercial side moving to in the future is is it going to just become super cheap and ubiquitous to get satellite imagery in the future is it going to be easy and cheap other you know, through a platform such as Sword to get your imagery when you need it. Yes, it looks like the trajectory is prices dropping over time 
and uh, easier accessibility of the data, which uh, of course will should theoretically expand the market since it'll be easier for people to access. But uh, as the price drops, uh, I think the competition is going to be vicious, and it'll be an interesting case of seeing the uh, the race to the floor and which companies survive. Mm. And and that's the thing is uh, if there's a lot of commercial companies out there and there's not a lot of you know and the stuff's cheap and it's everywhere, it's who will survive in the future. Um, you know, and 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 sort of to lead on to that, we're seeing you know people coming back to. Uh, the market offering, you know, uh, drone, uh, not drone, um, dirigible uh, or, or balloon imagery. And uh, Mike and Jim, we've, we've, we've had a discussion of, uh, in this space before. And do you think there's room in the market for, for that sort of imagery as well? I think very limited because uh, we've seen uh, a lot of concepts of using balloons in airships in the last 25 years, and uh, they haven't really panned out because they're competing against aircraft and satellites and now drones. And uh, plus you have limitations as far as where can you launch and recover them, controlling of them, and uh, how fast can they respond to uh, tasking and collection? Mm. Mm. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the balloon and the drone uh, activity has been going on since the 1960s. And uh, uh, one of the things that happens with a lot of companies that come up with new platforms is they don't do research into what has already been done and not worked in the past. Um, mm. And that's because there's a thing what I call the Google shadow. And the Google shadow is the vast amount of information about commercial, uh, in this case, surveillance and reconnaissance activities that was done by commercial companies from the 1960s all the way up to now that is not on the internet because it was never recorded. Mm. So it's all in books and brochures. And as a matter of fact, today we're moving our operations down to Bakersfield. I found my research notebook from AccuScan and that wow. held information about 15, 20 aerial survey companies in agriculture that had failed and our interviews with them on why they failed. <laughs> wow. So what happens that... is um, um, that people are, you know, technologies progress. Um, and so people who aren't aware that we've tried balloons or long-term, long-dwell, high-altitude drones and things like this, they say, hey, I'll give it a try again. Um, and um, uh, Raytheon had an entire endeavor to have high-altitude, long-dwell, loitering drones over cities to provide mm. both uh, internet uh, as well as Im uh, real-time imaging. Um, mm. And so, But that couldn't find a customer because the price of that was way, way too high. So it's mm. good that people are churning and looking at new platforms, but they need to look at, at what happened with Lockheed and all these other companies when they made blimps for military mm. applications and uh, none of them could get any traction and then yeah. commercial blimps and none of those got traction um, so yeah. it's it's interesting wow. interesting to see and i think the larger drones uh will be an interesting thing to look at in the future if you could get a predator class drone with its duration and its altitude if you could get the cost of that down to a couple million bucks you would then be able to replace manned aircraft and um might open an uh, entirely new market. Wow, cool.
Cool. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a really interesting point you brought up there, Mike, with the survivorship bias and, and the, the Google shadow. Well, nobody writes about failures. So how are people going to find out what's gone before and why it hasn't worked? Unless I have you've a got notebook a bit of, the of them. <laughs> and unless, unless you've got a notebook of them or, or have, 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 have talked to the people and, and, and done that people research rather than Google research. Wow, that's been that's fascinating. And I think that's pretty much all the questions we had, except for a little bit of trivia. Thanks for that, it's Neil. <laughs> and Jim and Mike, the reason I picked Australia trivia is, um, well, of course, we're based in Australia. And uh, being good Australians, we like to take the mickey out of Americans. So, of course, we have some trivia for you. And as we've uh, said before, it is first in best dressed. So as I read off the answers, as I read off the fourth answer, uh, just signal your name and you'll get to answer the, the, the question. So first question is, why is the emu and kangaroo depicted on Australia's Commonwealth coat of arms? A, because these animals can't walk backwards. B, because these animals are national icons. C, because these animals are deceptively dangerous. Or D, because these animals are higher in population than people. Mike. <laughs> okay. I think it's the walk backwards. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> Jim. Your answer? I, I think it's the uh, B, the national symbols. I'll go with the safe answer. Mike, you're right. It's because these animals can't walk backwards. <laughs> of wow. course, it doesn't they, mean they that are they're not deceptively dangerous. They are well. That true as well. But they are thought to represent a nation moving forward. Very good, Mike. Wow. Okay. Next. Next question. So, okay. Question two. How many states does Australia have? A, seven, B, six, C, eight, or D, nine? Mike, seven. Mm. I'll, I'll Jim, go with have six. You an answer? Yeah, six. Jim, you're correct. Jim, answer goes to Jim. It's six states. Six states and two territories. I think that's probably where you, where you guys got led astray. Moving on to the next question. What year did Australia get the first female prime minister? Was it A, 2007, B, 2009, C, 2010, or D, 2012? Mike, I don't think you've got a female prime minister. Jim? You've got a good uh, chance of getting this question right, Jim. <laughs> uh, okay, take a stab at them. Uh, let's see. I think it was 2012. Uh, I'll go with that. Uh, well, you're very close. It's a little bit of a trick question because, in fact, she was prime minister at 2012, but she started in 2010. Julia Gillard was Australia's first female prime minister. Okay. 
I'm going to skip this next question. I don't even know the quite answer to that. So, um, okay. And question that question relates to the previous one. Okay. Being from California, you should know your actors very well. Which of these actors was not born in Australia? Was it A, Phoebe Tonkin, B, Russell Crowe, C, Hugh Jackman, or D, Margot Robbie? Oh, no. Nobody talks about where they were born here. (laughs) What do you think, Jim? I was thinking of the last one, but I don't know my actors and actresses' birthplaces that well. Okay. Well, okay. We have okay. to blame hint, Russell Crowe on you. Miles. Yeah. <laughs> the, the hint is it's male. The actor is male. Oh. Okay. That narrows it down to what? Three? I'll well, take Hugh Jackman. Re- <clears throat> Hugh Jackman or Russell Crowe? Okay. Mike, you go with Hugh. Jim, you go with Russell Crowe. Yes. Jim, you're I'll right. Russell. <laughs> ah. ah. Good guess, Jim. <laughs> yes. Pure guess. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. How many joeys can a kangaroo have at one time? Is it A, two, B, four, C, one, or D, three? I thought it was C, Jim, C, one. Oh, wait a minute. No. Wrong. Wrong. There's two and one survives. I forgot. So. Oh, well, very close. Um, yeah. Let's see. It can have, okay. Well, not the norm. A kangaroo can have three babies at one time. It can have an older Joey out of the pouch, another in the pouch, and additional embryo in pause mode. Trick question. Oh yeah. Trick question. Yeah, yes, certainly yes. A trick question. <laughs> but good to but good good knowledge nonetheless. Here's another question. Being being very appropriate in the remote sensing space, what constellation is depicted on the Australian flag? A the Southern Cross, B the Southern Diamond, C the Southern Stars, or D the Southern Tip? Uh, Jim, the southern, A, the Southern Cross. I thought it was the Big Dipper. <laughs> Very good, Jim. <laughs> They'd have the Upside Down Very, Dipper there. So, <laughs> What is that called? Saucepan. Jim, okay. uh, uh, the drone father here, our audio engineer, calls it the saucepan. Okay. Okay. And how do you find the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere using that constellation? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave have you they, to Google that. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have they even okay. seen the North Star? Yeah. So. Here's a good question. What what is the town Cooper PD famous for? Is it A opals, B gold, C silver, or D oil? A. 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 It is Sorry. opals and also mm-hmm. they have a world famous golf course. Uh, trivia news to me. I would have got. It's I didn't know about dirt. the golf course. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> very good. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Australia is home to big things. Which of these is not real? A, the big bogan. C, the big pineapple. I'm sorry. A, the big bogan. B, the big pineapple. C, the big banana. Or D, the big kanga. Uh, I'll go for the big banana. Okay. Um. Correct answer f- is the big bogan. Oh wait, hey, sorry, the big bogan is actually real. Um, the big kanga. The big kanga. Neil is correct. What is a bogan? A bogan is. Um, is it like a um, headway? In political, in politically correct terms, a bogan is a person who prefers to wear sandals to all events. Oh. Um, um. 
singlet no, no t-shirts. For a, a predilection for heavy metal music and flannel net shirts. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. fine. So the, the score, the current score is Mike 2 and Jim 4. We're going to try and even this up with oh. another... Um, what? Two, two questions. This, these are the two deciders. Okay. You're going Let me down, find Jim. a good one. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be tough from here on. Okay, gentlemen, gentlemen, what do you call a group of platypuses? A a paddle, B a puddle, C a poodle, or D a piddle? One A a paddle, <laughs> D a piddle. Right, you're right, Mike. Mike, you're spot on. A yes, <laughs> oh, take no prisoners now. Closing the gap. Okay. <laughs> Who is the greatest cr cricket player of all time? Rose, this is a one Rose. one answer. That's Jim, tough. do you have an answer? Ron, yeah, rhymes it's... with Ron Radman. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> cricket player, cricket player. Um, um, uh, yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, it's coming. At, yeah. No, I'll let Mike try. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it, uh, cricket players, is a cricket a type of musical instrument? <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably the wrong question to ask there, Darren. How about it's this a... one? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I've, got, I've got one here. Which of the technologies did an Australian not help to invent? A, the black box, B, plastic banknotes, C, the electric drill, or D, the USB drive? D, the USB drive. Okay, that one goes to Jim. Oh, I was oh. going to pick that too. Huh. Uh, it's, it's quick in the dead here, mate. There you go. <laughs> and, but yes, Australians did the black box, plastic banknotes, electric drill. So there you go. Bit of, bit of trivia there today. Who has plastic <laughs> banknotes? Do you got, is your money oh. plastic? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Number. Um, and we... We've we've got we've had plastic banknotes for years, and uh, we sell the technology all over this, the world. Yeah, but the Americans have not adopted it, and we no. just use this crude paper currency. Yeah, like, tradition, like cavemen. Yeah, it's <laughs> tradition. It's classic currency. Tradition. Yeah, not this plastic yes, but also money. Easier, e easier to forge, which is the uh, the 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 basically the uh, the security is much uh, safer on plastic yeah. banknotes. <laughs> Guys, I think we're going to go with a grand final question. Winner take all. Oh, no. There it goes. This, and this is, an, this is an international question. The final question, grand final. In what region was Qantas established? Was it Queensland, Northern Territory, New South Wales, or Victoria? I go Queensland. D, Victoria. That's for Q. Oh, okay. <laughs> Victoria was wrong. Qantas was established in Longreach, Queensland. Name yes. actually name name actually stands for Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services. And that's oh, all we have time for today, that's Jim right. and Mike. It's been a lot of fun uh, testing your Australian trivia. Um, it's also been great testing your knowledge on. Um, yeah, uh, and and Dan gives the official tally: Jim five, Mike four. Uh, oh, so there, oh, so there you go. So I have to call him King of the World now, don't I? <laughs> Until Just the, the only southern the next hemisphere. Time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, guys, it's been a lot of fun uh, for having you on the SORCast. Thanks for joining us. And for our listeners, tune in uh, next time on the SORCast where we talk about more things, drones, satellites, aerial, you name it. Anything aerial or remote sensing, we'll bring it to you. So thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. That's all we have time for today. Tune in to our next SOARcast for more discussion on geospatial products found on SOAR. So what is SOAR Plus? Well, imagine if Google Earth and Dropbox had a baby. SOAR Plus is the premier solution that allows users to store, view and share maps and imagery on one simple mapping platform. Think of SOAR Plus as your own digital atlas. Find out more by visiting us at soar.earth.